This is their new hoax. But, you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and, of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. We've spoken to a lot of different people throughout this pandemic, and we always try to speak to a lot of nurses on this podcast to to get a real insight into what COVID is like for you guys. This week, we're speaking to Michelle Dowd, who is a nurse manager of intensive care services at Liverpool Hospital. She's been an ICU nurse for 28 years and has worked in many different ICUs in Sydney and Melbourne, but spent most of her career at Liverpool Hospital. And now she has been intimately involved in fighting COVID since March. Um, Michelle, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Good to be here. Um, Michelle, you're a nurse manager at the intensive care services at Liverpool Hospital, and I know that you've treated many COVID patients throughout the pandemic, but Liverpool has been at the centre of the recent New South Wales outbreak. Um, What has that been like? Well, it's certainly been busy, to say the least. Um, Business as usual for us didn't really let up. We had a a lull early uh, in in the piece when we first... the situation first went down, people were definitely avoiding hospital. Mm. Um, but then things ramped up very quickly in the weeks following that. Um, people who'd stayed away or hadn't been uh, making their health a priority all of a sudden came back to the hospital. Mm. So even even though um, there wasn't the activity that we normally would because we did suspend uh, some elective surgery, the intensive care service itself was still extremely busy and the patients we were getting um, were a lot sicker than they'd been. So the COVID patients were extremely sick. That first wave of COVID that we got uh, was so sick, the sickest uh, respiratory ICU patients that we've ever seen. Oh, wow. Um, and on top of that, we had um, our business as usual, but extremely sick patients because uh, they had avoided hospital and appointments and things like that. So that mm. was extremely challenging. Yeah. Um, and I guess just staying on that, I mean, it, it was interesting now, uh, you know, the exactly what happened, I guess I'm not 100% sure, and maybe you'll be able to fill us in a bit, but I know that some of the cases were linked to the hospital itself. Um, was that strange and different? And then, you know, did everyone at the hospital immediately have to get tested or, you know, run us through a bit of that? Oh, look, this, it was, wasn't until the second wave that we actually had hospital staff positive. Mm. Um, we, in intensive care, we're very used to our infection control practices. And I, I'm grateful to be able to say that to this day, no intensive care nurse, doctor or allied health professional has tested positive to COVID. Mm, that's great. Um, and that, that, well, that's not just testament to what the staff are doing in the hospital with their infection control practices. But to me and, and what the, the ICU director and I always say back to our staff is that they're doing the right thing at home as well. Mm. Uh, so as you could imagine, I think intensive care, critical care professionals really live and breathe their work. Um, so they've absolutely done the right thing. I feel like 
um, we've all been in a, a bit of a bubble. I, I barely even go to the grocery store and things like that. So mm. for us in intensive care, that protection started very early and it continues to this day. Yeah. So I must admit, we weren't surprised when there started being healthcare worker cases, mm. um, you know, especially in, in the ED population, those uh, doctors and nurses do uh, more than any other, I guess, any other department. They do move between hospitals. Mm-hmm. So we weren't extremely surprised. Um, what was really good was that we were very prepared for it. So when it did when it did happen, when staff members did test positive, uh, the, the process of um, tracking, you know, things back and doing the tracings and everything like that happened very rapidly. Mm. Um, the executive, ever since March, the, the whole executive and all of the department heads, we've been working, you know, beyond our normal hours uh, and we're in contact all the time. So um, when these things need to happen and, you know, we always make a joke that it always happens at 5pm on a Friday because it seriously does. We yeah. very quickly gather the rosters, gather the tracings and, and do that. We'd already started surveilling staff doing, you know, non-symptomatic um, testing. Mm. And in intensive care, even the smallest symptom, um, we were insisting that staff stay away and get tested. Yeah. So in answer to your question in a nutshell, wasn't surprised, but their reaction was very rapid. Mm. Uh, we were able to contain it very quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's something that I, I've wondered. Um, you know, is there regular testing? So say in your unit, because you guys obviously deal with the, the most ill COVID patients, is there regular, because say, <clears throat> whatever, say there's 20 people on a roster, I don't know the numbers, but, you know, maybe over that period, maybe no one gets the sniffles, but do you say, right, we're going to test everyone once a month or because obviously there's asymptomatic people there's whatever i mean is there precautions like that running at the minute definitely definitely certainly where we've come now um and just just for the record i've got 264 nurses so that's just nurses alone (laughs) wow Uh, (laughs) yeah so i would say that um in those staff all of us have been tested i think a minimum of three times Mm -hmm. in the last you know six seven months but yes we moved from you know very quickly we were insisting that staff even before the screening at the entrances began, we were insisting that not just to protect our patients because they are the most vulnerable in the hospital, but to protect the team. We, you know, we knew very early on. We learned a lot from uh, lessons, you know, from overseas. Uh, so we knew very early on we had to protect the team at all costs. So, um, you know, that was happening and even the slightest symptoms, staff were taking themselves off the testing. Uh, and since then, we've moved into surveillance type testing. So the hospital uh, regularly provides that surveillance screening. Um, and then staff, there's so many pop-up clinics that are close to everyone's home now as well. So any symptom at all, staff are getting themselves tested. Mm. And so, the, again, I kind of, not to hop too much on the, mm. the latest um, outbreak in Liverpool, but, um, you know, have you had many scares like that? kind of related to the hospital as a as a place of contact or you know and and if yes you know what are they like different to because you know there's you know you'll hear there's a case that's popped up in the eastern suburbs or new south wales country but is is it much different when it happens in the hospital oh of of course it is because you know you do your workforce is you know the most important thing so i mean for us it's popped up in three different departments but it's been you know as i said rapidly managed uh, with the staff pulled out and put straight into isolation and all contacts 
you know, whether they're, they're casual or close contacts, all contacts tested. Um, and even, you know, the extra isolation, the just-in-case sort of stuff definitely did happen. Um, we, as part of our winter strategy anyway, we have a very robust casual workforce. So we were able mm. to maintain service delivery by putting in that casual workforce and backfilling. And we in the intensive care unit even provided staff uh, for the emergency department while they had um, their nurses and doctors out as well. So right. it's, it really is a whole of hospital um, management. So we're all helping each other and assisting, um, you know, nurses who uh, normally work in office jobs were back into clinical jobs. There's been a lot of um, you know, movement around uh, to fulfil roles that were necessary at the time. So I think the reaction was rapid. Uh, it was appropriate and we are able to contain it very quickly. Mm. Uh, and that's another area I've been so interested in is how quickly um, the health forces around the country have had to to move and, and change. And like you say, I, you know, nearly every nurse I've spoke to have said, I was doing this before and now I'm doing this and I have to do this for this reason. So um, you as a nurse manager, how has your role changed from six months ago? Oh, oh look, I think probably... At- my presence, I've always been that visible present manager in the clinical space anyway. But I think that I, I realised early on that I would need to do that a lot more and that I had to increase my communication to the staff and to make sure that I used a lot of different means of communication in order to capture them all regularly. We had a lot of anxiety in the team, so it was very important that they were, and and the information that we were getting was just changing so rapidly in Mm. those early weeks and months. Uh, It was so important for us as a group, you know, as an executive group and as an ICU exec to stay on top of it. Uh, so we we worked longer hours. We um, you know we were we were there quite late. We were often there on weekends. Uh, our senior group of uh, nurses and doctors we were in contact with each other, you know, constantly updating things as they came in and making sure the staff were informed. That was just so important. Mm-hmm. So I guess um, that I've been an ICU nurse for 28 years. So I think initially you know you just you just deal with it. But what I didn't realise was just how anxious the team would be and I had to change my focus from being that tough come on this is what we do let's just do it to yeah I understand your anxiety and it's important that you have all the information and that I help you understand why we've come to the decisions for these different practice measures Mm. you know the aerosol generating procedures um, which we do so much in intensive care um, you know those early COVID patients that we got that had um, just dreadful dreadful adult respiratory distress syndrome where um and they were in in icu for weeks and months we needed to put tracheostomies in uh, we needed to you know flip them onto their stomachs the pictures that you saw you know in italy and places like that with patients on their stomachs that was us that we were doing that as well mm-hmm. um so it required just a you know really good communication really good presence um, I'm a nurse manager, so I'm not in uniform. So it meant, you know, for me, it was back into my scrubs, mm. back into the clinical space, ensuring that, you know, I was not asking anything of my nursing staff that I wasn't willing to do either. Mm-hmm. Um, telling stories as well, sharing stories. I worked during, um, you know, H1N1 and I, right. you know, I worked during SARS and things like that. So for us, you know, for those of us that have been around for longer, sharing those stories and, and reassuring the team was really important. Mm. So that's interesting. I mean, you just kind of answered my next question, but um, it, it is interesting because I'm assuming, you know, like you said, you're not really on the tools as much as you used to be. Um, no. So I guess, um, you know, was it hard to really kind of make that, you know, put your mind back into that? Because this is kind of a once in a generation 
um, you know, event. Um, there's probably yeah. nurses who are maybe might say to some of their higher ups like, oh, God, this is really difficult. This way of doing things is difficult or, you know, just being on my feet or donning and doffing or whatever the, the challenge is. And then for you to be able to try and understand that when you are yeah. not maybe physically going through that must be tough for you. Um, I, I, in some ways it was, in other ways it wasn't. I, I feel like in the 28 years I've been in intensive care, I've been a manager for five minutes. Right. Um, I did come from an education background. Uh, and education in ICU is, is, you know, at the bedside, primarily at the bedside. So um, in my brain, the time has gone very fast. So I, I feel like I was able to flip back to that a little bit. Mm. Um, again, my personality is very hands-on anyway. Um, so I, I liked it. I think that as nurses, you know, no matter, you know, how far removed we are from the bedside, I think there's still always that part of our brain that, that longs for you know that that sick patient that you 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 elbow deep in and that you you know managing and monitoring and changing and everything. So um, to some degree, I, I liked it. It was in, it was important. Um, there were times when I guess I had to get myself back into the office and make sure that the losses were okay and people were paid and you know the overtime was properly calculated and things like that. But um, for me personally, I think it was reassuring to be at the bedside more. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to go back then to the the patients themselves, you mentioned in that first wave, some of the patients were very very sick. Um, and now yeah. I, I haven't really spoken to anyone in Melbourne for a long time, which obviously you can imagine the reasons why. Um, but I think in this country, because of how well comparatively comparatively we've done, especially in New South Wales, we haven't heard so much about how sick people have been. And maybe there's probably a lot of people out there who haven't wanted to kind of identify themselves and talk to the media about yeah. their recovery going on. So we probably, you know, I think that maybe links to why um, New South Wales has maybe become a bit complacent recently. Um, so you run mm. us through a bit about, uh, you know, kind of maybe how sick these people were and maybe and why yeah. you think that you're not seeing that now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that everyone who was, you know, has been tested COVID positive, they've, they've not wanted to face the media or anything like that. So I, I don't think we've had the face of the patients uh, represented so much in Australia. Um, it was it was scary. You know, um, those patients were really, really sick. They couldn't see their loved ones. Uh, at one stage, we locked down the ICU completely and nobody came in the doors except the staff. Mm. Uh, we were so strict with our infection control measures uh, in, in those early weeks. All the patients saw of us were eyes behind some goggles. That was pretty much it. We had head covers, you know, face covers, goggles on, face shields over that, and then full gowns and, and gumboots. Um, that was kind of what they saw of us. Our voices just became so important. And I guess at the bedside, that's what we encourage as the clinicians, talk to these people, let them hear your voice, keep that reassurance going. Um, you know, so that was, I think, for our, for our you know, staff at the bedside, um, that was exhausting. That was emotionally exhausting because they knew um, that the family members couldn't be there and that if, the patients didn't recover, that they were the last voices and, and eyes that those patients would see. Um, even though when they were extremely sick, they were they were very well sedated. But um, as I said, those patients that recovered were with us for weeks and months even. And, um, you know, they were interacting with us. And then, you know, we required all sorts of other rehabilitation care as well. Mm. So I guess in answer to your question, no, the country really hasn't seen the face of COVID of patients. Um, you know, we've seen a little bit come out of those horrific pictures out of the nursing homes and families trying to communicate through windows. 
um, and things like that. And we did see the patients from overseas with the patients lying on their stomachs, something we call proning. Mm. Um, and, you know, the the, 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 the um, oxygen tents and things like that. But we've not seen those pictures. We've not let um, the media and the patients and the families haven't let that in as much. So I think you're right. I think the complacency, because they don't understand the face of it, um, mm. is definitely there. And, I mean, are we, is the reason why you're not seeing such severity now is just because of the lack of numbers in New South Wales? Oh, not so much. The, the virus is definitely evolving. Right. Um, what we saw in that first wave, I, I look at it in, in three waves, with us being in the third wave now. Right. So what we're really seeing and what the, um, the infectious diseases um, professionals will tell us is that, you know, that first wave we saw, um, you know, very sick respiratory conditions. They had, uh, you know, I heard one physician say lungs like concrete. We were really struggling to physically ventilate these patients. Um, But in saying that, the majority of our patients recovered. Um, So the treatment that we were using was appropriate. Then in the second wave, um, we didn't get anywhere near the numbers in the hospital or intensive care. The majority of people were reasonably well and able to be looked after in the community, which is, is of course, the, the preference. Um, you know, people in their homes not coming into into a hospital building where there's other sick people. And what we're seeing now in this third wave, again, is asymptomatic carriers. Mm. So people who don't even have symptoms who are testing positive on surveillance. Yeah. Um, so the virus is definitely evolving. And even at the worst in Victoria, um, they really didn't see the intensive care numbers that we were seeing overseas. Mm-hmm. So um, it's been quite it's quite a different experience for us for each wave and in Australia compared to overseas, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, on the surface of that comment, um, I would maybe some people would say, well, that's great because it, you know, you're not having to deal with such sick patient, patients. But um, at the same time, you know, when we know, say, I think today there was 11 cases uh, off the top of my head, I can't exactly remember, in New South Wales. Mm. But then that says to me that, like you say, there might be hundreds of other probably asymptomatic people, maybe thousands. I don't know. Maybe don't quote me on that. But um, the fact that we don't know what's going on with this virus, it's evolving so quickly. That must be a bit scary for a healthcare professional like yourself. Oh, it certainly is because we do deal with, you know, for us in intensive care, we deal with the most vulnerable patients in the community. Um, You know, on top of that, I've got staff who live with vulnerable patients in the community. You know, we have a lot of healthcare workers who have elderly parents that they live with or um, children who are chronically ill and things like that. So it's not just the anxiety. Um, I think that COVID has brought home and work together closer for health professionals than ever before you know we're not just anxious about you know what we're going to do in our workplace we're anxious about what we could potentially take home as well Mm -hmm. so it's blurred those lines between work and home for us for the first time ever because it's so contagious so i guess that yes at some stage the country does need to get back we have to and we're already using the terminology in health you know living with covid we are going to have to revert back to models of care that we were doing previously um, and, you know, converting our wards back to some sort of semblance of normality while at the same time responding to COVID too mm-hmm. because there still are the elderly and the vulnerable in our community uh, who are at risk if they get COVID. But then, you know, there's a the whole other side of it. Why do we accept every single year that the elderly die of influenza? You know, we really need to, in, in review of our practices with COVID, we also need to review our infection control practices you know, in, in healthcare and aged care as a, as a whole mm. um, because we shouldn't accept 
that people die from viruses, whether it's COVID or whether it's influenza. Um, we really should review our infection control practices as as a health service. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's super interesting to hear you say that because I think a lot of um, the con- the conversation in the media has been, because we don't hear a lot from health professionals, maybe bar the chief health officers and so on, um, we talk about the acceptable amount of loss. And I think that's kind of become... Um, just standard for a lot of people in the community but to hear you as a health professional say that you know it's not really acceptable at all is really interesting Um, I I wonder what's the longest period a patient has been in ICU uh, with you all Oh, just I've had patients in ICU for over a year but do you mean with COVID I mean sorry yes with COVID yeah (laughs) yeah no I think I think our longest patient was with us for I'd be guesstimating because I don't have my list in front of me, but I think it was probably two months. Right. Uh, So that would be a patient who, you know, got terrible adult respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS as we call it, ended up uh, intubated and on a ventilator. Um, We practiced the proning where we turn them onto their stomach. But Mm. once we get to about 14 days where they've been orally intubated for ventilation, we really need to start thinking about tracheostomy. So Mm. that's what we did with several of our COVID patients at Liverpool, they got tracheostomies so that we could do that slow weaning, what we call slow weaning from ventilation, which we did. Um, So a few of those patients, and then, you know, they uh, had those uh, tracheostomies removed or decannulated, as we say, uh, and then it was a matter of rehabilitating them, getting them strong enough again, because you can imagine there's so much muscle wasting. Um, So getting them strong enough again and getting them, you know, having normal intake and and getting stronger and then transitioning to the ward and then from the ward transitioning to the community. So we had great success, but we did have a couple of patients that were with us for a good two months. Mm. Uh, And I know that, you know, once they leave, maybe rehab is is kind of farmed out to the next nurse, the next um, department. But uh, do you know much about kind of um, these really severe patients or do you guys keep in touch or do you know much about their recovery going forward? No, we, we actually do because we're, um, we're, we were very invested with them as individuals, I think, because, um, because they couldn't be visited by their families until they were cleared of the virus. Mm. Um, you know, we did spend a lot of time with them and especially we kept them in intensive care a little longer because they were a lot more fragile than our average long-term respiratory COVID patients. Um, respiratory patients pre-COVID so they required you know they would tire with physiotherapy and uh, their oxygen levels would drop rapidly so they did stay with us longer than um, the average long-term patient Uh, so we did get very connected to them and we wanted to know how they were going afterwards but um, the health service is very connected the the hospital system with the community system is very connected Um, and with the um, creation of the emergency operations centre we call it EOC um, and that's closely linked to SHEOC, which is the State Emergency Operations Centre. Um, we get information flow goes both ways, which is really important. So we were able to find out how those patients were going at home. And quite often their relatives would send back photos and cards and thank yous to update us with how they're going. So um, it was lovely to hear about people getting strong and getting back to their normal lives again. Yeah. Uh, tell us something that nurses that are listening to this, that people who've not treated COVID patients, uh, what they wouldn't know about the disease or, or, or treatment of the disease. Oh, what they wouldn't know. Um, I don't know. Wearing um, wearing uh, PPE for long periods does a lot of mess to your face. <laughs> I think, yeah, we've <laughs> we seen a lot of pictures, to, but... yeah. 
Yeah, we had to get really creative with um, taping and, um, you know, we rotated staff out of the COVID, what we call pods. We call our different sections of ICU pods. So rotating staff in and out was really important. Um, But at the same time, some staff didn't want to be rotated out. They wanted to see the shift through with that patient, that one patient that they were connected to and caring for as well. So um, I think that I guess what some people would know is just how, because the family's not there uh, and we're so used to that in intensive care, we work side by side with the family. They often sit at the bedside and, um, you know, especially with long-term patients, they assist us with the care and things that we're doing. We didn't have that this time with COVID. So, um, you know, we we played music and we sang to them and we um, put pictures up in front of them. Um, For the first time in intensive care, we also used telehealth. Uh, we'd never really done that before, um, you know. So we we brought in um, video computers on wheels, and we um, conference video conference with patients' families so that they could see them. And once that they were recovering, they could talk to them again. So that was a whole different side of nursing for us was the introduction of telehealth as well. Um, so you know, we just did some creative and interesting things. I think uh, as we do, as we do. Mm. You, you've mentioned families quite a lot throughout. And that must, you know, throughout this COVID period um, must have been very difficult. I think maybe dealing with families at the best of times can be challenging, um, different as we all are. I know that me personally, when family members have been hospital, I don't think looking back that I've been the best uh, person to deal with as a doctor or a nurse. Um, (laughs) But how has dealing with families been in this way? I mean, uh, do you get much FaceTime, you know, off the ward with them? Or how how have you gone about kind of keeping them informed, keeping them calm um, or, you know, just keeping them in the loop? It's been really challenging and we've seen the whole range of emotion uh, and we expected it very early on. Uh, We expected anger from restricted visiting. We expected, you know, sadness, all of those emotions. So um, it's been very important that myself and my other managers have met with families really regularly, that we liaise with the medical team so that we ensure when we didn't have visiting at all, we had to make sure that the doctors, and again, it's very hard legally. There's only so much information you can give over the phone as well. So that was very challenging. So we had to get some medical legal advice over that as well. So it was very important um, to make sure that the right person from the family was being spoken to um, because, you know, quite often there's very big families and everyone wants a piece of the information. So it was really honing down um, because we didn't have a lot of time. I've got 40 ICU beds, you know, 40 families on the worst day of their life. So just that communication was absolutely the key um so it was really important that we were we were meeting them outside of the icu when they couldn't come in that we were apologizing for the situation we were explaining what we were doing and why we were doing it and how important that protection of of their family member was but them as well Mm. Uh, and the team making sure that they understood that a lot of the protection was because you know, the intensive care team needed to be protected as well. Mm. Um, so that communication was key, communication on the phone, that communication face-to-face. And very hard when you're wearing a mask to look people in the eye and help, you know, express your empathy to them and to listen to what they're feeling and what they're saying. We work very, very closely with our social workers. We have 
dedicated social workers in intensive care um, all the time. So really linking in with them, their job changed a lot as well. Uh, they were doing less of the, you know, helping people with the, the Medicare and the forms and the, you know, contacting and all that sort of stuff. And more of it was just making sure that psychological safety of relatives and making sure people were okay and also coordinating family conferences. Um, again, we're very lucky at Liverpool. We have a conference room um, that has a very long table and it's got at one door that is to the outside of ICU and one door that's internal. So even at the worst time, we were able to bring families to one end of the table um, from the outside and we were able to enter from the other side. So we were still meeting with them in person, mm-hmm. but we were still physically distancing from them as well. Yeah. Um, so those, all those, you know, whether it was in person, on the phone, via video link or um, at the bedside once they'd recovered, uh, and they were testing negative, that communication was absolutely the key. But, you know, we did have awful days. You know, you have to let people sometimes express their emotion, but at the same time, you have to protect your team and the psychological safety of the team. So I've talked about the social workers, but, oh, my goodness, our ward clerks are just incredible. You know, they're the ones that answer the phones. They're the ones that go to the door when the doorbell rings. Um, they're often the ones who are abused, you know, by a family member screaming at them. Mm. So um, it's been really hard for them as well. We've had a couple of, I will admit, we've had a couple of security incidents, but right. most of the time um, we can reason with people and, and most people just want to be listened to what their concerns are. They just want information. Yeah. So, yeah. In your position, I mean, just from this conversation, you're having to be doubly aware and empathetic of what your colleagues are going through uh, as well as the families of the patients. Um, How has this seven-month period been for you with these extra stresses, these extra um, worries? It's been intense. It's been very intense. I I am lucky in that my children have grown. I've got a 20-year-old and a 22-year-old that lives in Queensland. Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen her, my eldest, since February. So that's that's been tough. It's the longest time in her life that I've ever um, not seen her. Mm-hmm. So um, the video conferencing I do at work, I also do with my family. Um, so I haven't had to physically care for young children anymore. Um, I, my, I've been very lucky. My husband's been able to work from home a bit. So he tends to, um, I was scared of the grocery store for a time there. So he does all <laughs> the too. groceries. and Yep, yeah, and I've got him washing his hands like a healthcare professional now. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> so that's been great. Um, my sister's an ED nurse in Perth, so she manages one of the busiest emergency departments in Perth. So we tend to do a Friday on the way home debrief, um, just how are you going, what have been your challenges this week. So that that's been really good for both of us. But having my daughter in Queensland and my sister and her family over in Perth, um, has been a bit challenging. Mm. Um, my parents are super well, but they're at that age where they're in their 70s. So even though they're not far from me, they're just down the coast, um, I've stayed away. So I probably haven't seen them very much this year. So just, I guess I felt distant um, from my fa- from my extended family. But at the same time, I've been very lucky because as health professionals, we've kept going to work. So um, my team is a bit like a family and we've looked after each other. We've been well looked after by the community. We got fed quite a lot. Uh, donuts would turn up, and um, we had a, a law firm in Liverpool give money to a restaurant. That um, they oh, brought wow. us breakfast one day, they brought us dinner another day. Um, so the community has just been so generous. We've got up in our tea room. We've got incredible. Um, 
paintings and photos from childcare centres, um, some of our workers' kids, as well as just childcare centres around that just wanted to thank the doctors and nurses at the hospital. So we've put them up all over the tea room. So that's been lovely as well. So I guess it's just been looking after each other. So I guess at home, our families try and look after us. I've done less cooking in the last seven months than ever in my life. So I've been looked after. So how do you decompress? I, I know that, you know, you, got, you guys don't always get weekends, but I would imagine, you know, you get one or two days off a week and normally you could probably forget about ICU, but COVID's everywhere. Everyone's talking about yeah. it. It's on the news. How do you forget yeah. about it? How do you try and decompress at the minute? Um, I've, I've tried to stay healthy. It's, um, it's very easy to, I like a glass of wine or two, but I was very conscious um, right from the beginning that I shouldn't do that as a means of decompressing. So I controlled that very early on uh, and I tried to make sure that I was sleeping and eating, but also encouraging the rest of the team to do that as well. Um, you know, I've, my dogs are my therapy. I've got two very beautiful Labradors. Um, so I, I sometimes it just, for me, it just means sunshine, dogs at my feet, just sitting outside and just, you know, letting it all go. Um, but I have been an intensive care nurse for 28 years, even though COVID is something in this you know, worldwide pandemic is something we've never done before. I think that for a lot of us who've been um, in health for a long time, we've developed those coping mechanisms over the years. Um, I had years where I worked permanent night shift and um, you know, I still remember particular patients by their name and I can still see their faces from you know, 10, 20 years ago. There's always going to be those patients that stick with you. And I think this year of COVID, I'm still going to remember, I can list every patient that we had in intensive care um, with COVID. I can list every single name for you. Um, they stick in your mind. They really stick in your mind. But I think you have to focus on, on the good side of things. Um, you've got to focus on um, the good outcomes, the amazing teamwork and the people who've gotten home or the people who we've provided a comfortable passing to that side of it as well. I think that's part of um, working in critical care. So mm. uh, I guess an answer to that is you, you do, you develop coping mechanisms, but I won't lie, there's been tears, um, there's been frustration, there's been anger, um, all of those sort of things, um, but you just have to channel them correctly and try to find some balance. Um, I didn't think I'd be finishing my master's during a pandemic either, so um, that's been challenging but I can I can say that I'm at the tail end of that now and I will hopefully have a pretty decent thesis to submit in about 10 days. <laughs> well well done for doing that um, thank you um, on behalf of every non-medical professional in the country thanks so much for, for all the work you do and are doing during COVID we all well I appreciate it most of us appreciate it and um, thank you so much for coming on and, and opening up and chatting to us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. We, um, we, we love what we've been able to do to support our community. It's so important to us.